Part three, chapter three of Reisman's Steps by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. International. Violet was attending to another customer when Mr. Bowersh came into the shop. She ignored him until she had sped the first customer, who happened also to be in the trade. According to Violet's code, all customers were equal in the sight of the shopkeeper, and although the first customer was shabby and dirty and carried for his acquisitions a black stuffed sack which he slung over his shoulder, Violet would not abate one comma of her code. Nevertheless, while ignoring, she appraised Mr. Bowersh, whom on his previous visits she had only glimpsed once. She was confirmed in her original lightning impression that he bore a resemblance to Henry. He was of about the same age and build. He had the same sort of pointed beard and the same mild demeanour, and also his suit was of the same kind and colour of cloth as Henry wore on Sundays. But what a different suit from Henry's! It had a waist. Violet did not like that. Unaware that Mr. Bowash clothed himself in London, she attributed the waist to the decadent eccentricity of New York, nor did she like the excessive width of the black ribbon which held Mr. Bowash's pince nor did she like the boldly exposed striped shirt. Nobody except Violet and Elsie ever saw even the cuffs of Mr. Earl Ford's shirt, to say nothing of the front nor the elegant, carefully studied, projecting curve of the necktie. In short, Mr. Bowers failed utterly to match Violet's ideal of a man of business. She turned to him at last, as he was strolling about curiously, and greeted him with the hard, falsely genial, horrible smile of the suspicious woman who is not going to be done in the eye in a commercial matter. This was not at all the agreeable violet of the confectioner's shop, and the reason for the transformation was that she had a husband to protect, that the prestige and big transactions of the great Bowersh made her nervous, and that Mr. Bowersh was from New York. Violet, I regret to say, had fixed and uncharitable notions about foreigners. Mr. Bowersh acknowledged her greeting with much courtesy, and with no condescension whatever. "'My name's Bowash, Mrs. Earlforward,' said he. Why should he so certainly assume that she was Mrs. Earlforward? "'Oh, yes,' she murmured, simpering. "'You've called about the books, I suppose.' Her tone indicated that there was just a chance of his having called about the gas or the weather. "'Yes. Are they all ready for shipping?' "'What did he mean by shipping?' They were ready for him to take away, ready for dispatch. She nodded vaguely. "'Those are the cases, no doubt,' said Mr. Bowersh, pointing to the office and walking into it without invitation. "'People aren't supposed to come in here,' said Violet, smiling harshly as she followed him. He examined the packing of the cases rather negligently and then turned to the shelves and adjusted his pince-nez. "'Mr. Earl Ford left the bill. "'I don't know whether you'd like to check the volumes.' "'Mr. Bowersh appeared to be a man of few words. "'In another minute he had paid down the money in bank notes and treasury notes. "'Violet counted 
and temporarily locked the money away in a drawer of the desk. Strange that this reassuring episode did not soften her attitude. "'May I go on explore a little upstairs?' asked Mr. Bowers, while she was preparing the receipt. Evidently Henry, as sometimes he did to customers, had given Mr. Bowers the freedom of the house during Violet's absence. The house was still very full of books, and free exploration was good for trade, but Violet the housemistress objected to free exploration. "'I'm afraid I can't go up with you now,' said she. "'I'm all alone in the shop. I quite see.' Mr. Bowers accepted the rebuff with grace, and turned back again to the shelves, and then to the mounds of books on the floor. Having receipted the bill, Violet hemmed in the direction of the absorbed Mr. Bowers, who ignored the signal. Then two young women entered the shop, and Violet decided to punish Mr. Bowers by attending to them. They wanted sevenpennies. There were no sevenpennies, and Violet spent at least five minutes with them, making a profit of one penny on the sale of a soiled copy of the scapegoat. She displayed no impatience, and continued to chat after the deal was done and finished. She seemed to part from them with lingering pain. "'How much is this?' Mr. Bowash demanded, somewhat urgently, holding out a volume he had come into the shop. The book was a copy of an eighteenth-century Dutch illustrated edition, octavo, of La Fontaine's Tales. Violet, looking at it, inspected it. She did not know what the book was, but Henry had taught her some general principles, for instance, that any book printed before 1600 is worth money, that any book of verse printed before 1700 is worth money, and that most illustrated books printed before 1800 are worth money. Also, she had learnt to read Roman date numerals. Indeed, she had left Elsie out of sight, in the race for knowledge. The price of the book was marked in cipher, inside the front cover, ten shillings. In Elsie's vice royalty, all prices had been marked in plain figures, largely for the convenience of Elsie, but under Violet, plain figures were gradually being abolished. There was no need for them, and they were apt to interfere with Violet's freedom of action in determining prices to suit the look and demeanour of customers. "'A pound,' she answered. "'Put it in, please,' Mr. Bowersh pulled out a treasury note. "'We won't huggle. "'Now I must have these cases sent down to the American Express Companies at once. "'Please, at once. "'I'll have the books checked there. "'I've got a pile of stuff collected there, "'and they must leave London tonight, sure.' "'Mr. Earlford told me you would take the cases away with you in your car. "'Me take them away with me?' Well, in the first place I've come in a taxi, and in the second place I couldn't put those in a car, and they won't hold in a taxi either. I'll be glad if you send them down. I'm very sorry, but I don't see how I can send them. I haven't anybody here, as I've told you. She was unhelpful, adamantine. Mr. Earlford is in? Mr. Bowes' tone had begun to roughen in impatience. Oh, no. She swept aside such an absurd impossibility. But I'm sure he understood you were taking them away. She perceived, however, that Henry had involved her in this difficulty in order to escape the cost of delivery. Do you know where he is? 
I couldn't say exactly. He might be at a sale at Chingby's. Well, will you mind telephoning to him and saying... We don't have the telephone here, she replied, with cold triumph, remembering Henry's phrase, those New Yorkers. Well, can you send to a garage and get a van or something for me? I couldn't unless I went myself. Well, where is the nearest garage? I'm sure I couldn't tell you. Using words in a sense in which Violet had never heard them used, Mr. Bower dashed out of the shop to speak to his taxi driver. He returned in ten minutes. In the meantime, Violet had hammered the lids on the two cases. In possession of both the money and the books, she had maintained all her tranquillity. Mr. Bausch had come back with a Ford van in addition to his taxi. He led the driver of the taxi and the driver of the van into the office and instructed them to remove the cases. "'They're a seal, if you please,' he said dryly to Violet, who handed him the receipt, but showed none of the clemency due from a conqueror to the defeated. Mr. Bowers moralised to himself about English methods. "'Why do I hate the sight of a customer?' he asked himself, puzzled. "'I'll never come into this damned store again,' he said to himself. But he well knew that on his next visit he would come into the damned shop again, because the shop had the goods he wanted, and didn't care whether he bought them or not. If he could have ruined the shop by never coming into it again, he would perhaps have ruined the shop. But it was the shop's cursed indifference that spiritually beat him and ensured the triumph of the astonishing system. End of chapter 3